0: Hello and welcome to Spacefall. Very sadly, since our last episode, we got the news that Jacqueline Pierce, who played Servalan, has passed away. We here at Spacefall are obviously very big fans of Jacqueline Pierce. We've we've praised her performances over the last few episodes, but she really was a, a pioneer as a strong female villain in science fiction, and she deserves recognition for that.
1: Yeah, well, the character of Servalan was, I believe, only originally intended as being a minor character, and, and indeed was originally written as being male. So, casting her, I think, was a real stroke of genius. And the fact that they not only retained her, but gave Servalan increased screen time as the series goes on, really is a testament to Jacqueline Pierce's performance, how bigger impact she made. And going on from that, when you think about Black 7 and you remember the series, Serverland is one of the iconic images that comes to mind. So, in
0: recognition of Jacqueline Pierce's passing, we want to dedicate this episode about deliverance to her. It's an episode that I think, Richard, she has a really, really strong performance in.
1: Well, we do say in the episode, this really I think is the moment where we see the Serverland that we know from the rest of the series.
0: So, thank you Jacqueline Pierce for everything you did, and now...
1: Ave atque vale, President Servalan.
2: A little while ago, Enso Sun came to see me. His father was ill; he needed medical help and equipment. While he was here, he showed me plans of his father's creation, Orak. It is a brilliant achievement. There is nothing else like it in the universe.
0: Hello, and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 12 Deliverance. <laughs> First broadcast on the 20th of March, 1978, written again by Terry Nation. The director was Michael E. Bryant, at least he was credited, but there was also some work uncredited by David Maloney, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about. But yes, we need to flag that this is Michael E. Bryant's last right. Lake seven, right. which is a shame because we, we've had a lot of praise for him. Yes, that's right. So it's a shame to see him go out. The ratings for this were an even 9 million. That's
1: so a drop, I think, it's from last week. It's a
0: slight drop, but it's still sitting in that 9 to 10 range, so mm. it really has settled down for season one. Yes. Is, this is yours.
1: Yes. So, what did you think?
0: I'm actually going to be quite positive about this one. Okay. As you and the listeners know, I was quite down on Breakdown, and particularly on Bounty. Mm-hmm. And I made the observation last episode when we talked about Bounty that clearly the production team was running out of time and money at this point in the season.
1: Yeah, and I think they're all tired as well. Yeah,
0: and I did make the point that sort of Bounty was probably the one that really got left aside mm-hmm. because they had to concentrate on this last effective two-parter. And I think that actually does show. I think there is a large step up in quality and Deliverance. I think Deliverance is quite, quite easily the best of these last four. My yeah, mind. that's probably fair. Um, I think it's actually quite a good episode. There is a lot more going on than I expected and that I remembered. Mm. There are some really good performances. There's some really good lines. I think Chris Boucher's work shows through here in the scripting. That's my initial point. So i got a couple more comments. But first of all, what did you think, Richard?
1: I perhaps didn't get quite as much out of it as you did. I was certainly entertained by it. I don't think it's a bad episode. When we discuss breakdown, I got a bit more out of breakdown. Yep, so yep. I do remember watching this uh, on the ABC all those years ago and sort of buying into the what is Orac setup. So as we've said a few times during the podcast, I mean these episodes weren't really made to be picked apart forty years on. So really disassembling it in some ways is not the right thing to do. But I did have the note here. It is very much a setup episode for the finale.
0: Yeah, I had the same note as well. It's something we're going to come back to, I think, over the next few episodes because. At the very least, Deliverance and ORAC are unquestionably a two-parter. Yes. They can be very easily watched watched as one story.
1: I mean, today they would be a single episode, but...
0: That's right. And in fact, I mean, you could argue that it's in fact part one of a three-part if you count Redemption. Mm. And indeed, those three episodes, Deliverance, ORAC and Redemption, were put together on the third compilation tape. compilation tape, tape, And as a two-hour piece of, like, seven, Mm. that actually, I think, works best of all the compilation tapes. Because with the exception of the fact that there is a very clear change in design aesthetic in season two <laughs> that story actually flows really really well
1: the compilation tape left out probably what's a lot of the padding i think in all the episodes but particularly in this and aurac unfortunately it also left out the rather excellent scene with serverland and travis so
0: yeah that is true it's something i want to return to a bit more next episode when we talk about Orac, because that's the one that really got cut down yes the final general point i want to make is that yes whilst i was enjoying this it does have some really cool sci-fi ideas that I think mm. helped keep my interest. Okay. And, and so, yeah, there's... It's not an episode I've watched for a very long time. It's not an episode I naturally drag off the shelf.
1: No, that would be true as well, yes.
0: My opinion of it has really improved coming back. So, yeah, good. That's so, cool. what have you got for us this week?
1: All right, well, I broke this down into three main sections. Now, I call them Serviland, Ensel, and Megat. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> so, if we start with what I've called the Serviland section, which is obviously her plan and really the setup about what is Orac and what this unfolding deal is that she's done.
0: Yeah, and can I say the opening few minutes of this I thought was incredibly good. Mm. It's very tense. The tension ramps up. You get two people in the little spaceship. Where are they going? What are they doing? It's all a bit of a mystery. They don't know each other. Then they have some problems with the ship. It pulls out of control. Then it explodes, etc., etc. I actually... Yep. And all the while, it seemed to come with Serverland just sitting there watching all the time. I was really actually quite engaged by that. I thought it was a really, really strong opening.
1: Yeah, I thought that was nicely done. You said with Serverland watching the moment, she's obviously really, really focused on what's going on because she's got that little view screen in her yes. office and she cancels the council meeting or whatever it is.
0: And she's on edge. She, she's not hmm. the calm... Servalan that we mostly see. There's a real sense of trepidation and nervousness. in. Yes,
1: this is something that has to go to plan. Yeah. We probably should talk about the plan because there is obviously two plans happening here. We have the Ensor plan, which is clearly that Ensor Jr. will head back to the planet with Marriott and do the surgery. Marriott will be a hostage and then once the deal for the mysterious Aurak is complete, he'll then be returned to the Federation and they presumably head off into the sunset with their money. Mm. Servalan, of course, has the bright idea that If the surgeon never gets there... Yes. For the audience, it's very much, what is Aurak. All these mysterious hints. It is clearly something very valuable. It's clearly something that's been hinted for a while. Yes. It's something exceptional.
0: And unequivocally valuable, because Servalan doesn't hesitate in saying it's worth 100 million credits. No.
2: While he was here, he showed me plans of his father's creation. Aurak. It is a brilliant achievement. There is nothing else like it in the universe. And he wanted to sell it. Expensive, Travis. He wants one hundred million. One
1: hundred million? Are you sure whatever it is is worth that much?
2: It's worth ten times that much.
1: But this is very much a set up for the audience. that She obviously knows more about what AURAC is than we're expected to at this point. Yes. It is also, I think, fairly clear that obtaining it for the Federation, I think, is perhaps not really on her plan. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, I do have to say, going back to the spaceship, That is a really nice shot at the start where Mm. they come in through the windows of the ship and you see the two blokes working the controls.
0: It's something we've said consistently about Michael E. Bryan's work on the series. He's always looking for a slightly different or more innovative way Mm. to do what could be a very basic static shot, and that certainly comes through in that intro, yes.
1: Yeah, and of course we do get to meet the crew and they're interacting with each other. That's quite an interesting little scene. They've obviously just met, getting to know each other. You know, they're stuck in this cramped spaceship.
0: And this is the point that I really wanted to emphasise And I contrasted it with Breakdown, where, you know, I was critical, Mm. and one of my criticisms of Breakdown was that the characters never felt like real characters, they were ciphers. Whereas, even in this one scene that we get with Ensor Jr. and Marriott, you feel like these are real people. They've got Mm. emotions, they're nervous, they've got personalities, they're interacting in a very natural way, Mm. and and that, to me, does lift this episode and its characters a step up over the last couple. And I think the script has had that of work by Chris and it does show
1: Mm, that's a good point. Of course, we do get the thing here that the Ansellers are obviously extremely paranoid about security. Yes. And about being discovered. They've obviously clearly told Serverland where their base is, but Ansell won't even tell the bloke sitting next to him in the cockpit where they're going. No. It's all a great big secret. Of course, we do have the moment where they temporarily lose control of the ship and they get a nice emotional moment where, you know, is quite scared, obviously, that something's going to happen. Ensor clearly is also quite concerned but he finally gets the ship back under control. And then... There's an explosion. Yes. We mentioned a moment ago that Servalant has double-crossed them. There is the point here, the Ensors, although they're paranoid and security conscious, have obviously overlooked the fact that Servalant is quite willing just to kill a senior member of her staff to put her plans in motion.
0: It is. I mean, we'll talk a bit about perhaps some of the implications of Ensor's plan when we meet Ensor senior next episode. Yes. And I think there are some potential twists that could have been there. You're right, they haven't factored in Servalant's mm. ruthlessness, but on the other hand there is, I think, with this point, a certain amount of desperation from them as well. Mm. Like, they can't sit there and not do it. At some point, they have to get a surgeon to them.
1: Yes, that's right. Now, obviously, and this perhaps is leading into the second part of our discussion, but the ship crashes, the Liberator just happens to be standing nearby... Marriott is killed and Ensor is rescued by the Liberator team.
0: And and can I I just make a couple of points and observations I made just around the end of Marriott's little arc there. Again, there's a lot of really nice detail that really Mm. helped to elevate this episode for me. There's stuff like you hear the sound of the pressure changing when they open up the life capsule. Yes. Marriott's ID isn't just an ID. Blake actually goes through and oh, he's got a picture of a wife and two kids. Mm. You know, again, making him feel like a real person. And I also like the way that Avon has that moment of humanity where he sort of says, oh, look, seal up the capsule, you know, let let this guy rest. Yeah. All those details are unnecessary, Mm. but they are what contributes to making this feel like a real piece of drama.
1: Just to obviously finish off the section with Servalane, we then, of course, have what I think is the best scene in the episode, where she then has her conversation with Travis. She does her little calculated insult. She makes him wait, and she's got her head down just ignoring him. We see that he's not really broken, but he's certainly been somewhat cowed. Yes, he's been beaten.
2: You've lost some of your fire, Travis. Whatever happened to your pride? My pride, Supreme Commander? I ignored you. A calculated insult. You obviously recognized it as such. I did. And yet you remained silent. There was a time when you wouldn't have taken an insult like that from anyone.
0: And it's deliberately... Done to be a contrast with his first scene in Cyclokate, the mm. story, where he does push his way through and bounds him. You know, just strides in
1: and stands there, hands on hips in front of her desk. Exactly, yeah. yeah.
0: It's almost filmed from the same angle to really mm. emphasise that rhyming of the, of the moment.
1: Yeah, as we said, he's not broken, but he is really at a point now he's been humiliated by the fact there's been an inquiry, she's stripped him of all his duties and responsibility, and she makes the point that he was expected to resign the service. But he really can't, because it's his one chance to get Blake. And you sort of get this idea that really, without his uniform and his authority and his position, he really doesn't have anything else going
0: on. No, you can't imagine Travis sitting at home with his dressing gown indulging his hobbies or something, can you? No, that's
1: right. You're binging on Netflix.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On that little space portable glasses device thing. (laughs) No. Um, No, but you're right. Travis overtly says, I want my command back. Mm. And everything that he does in this episode is all about getting Serverland to give him his command
1: back. What he wants, Yeah.
0: His obsession really comes through in this conversation, and serverland outright says you are obsessed with Blake, and he says, it is my right. And then, then she goes on to sort of say, well, that's all very well good, but today's topic is not Blake. No. It's not implicitly stated, but it is implied in her conversation that executing the AURAC plan mm. is the price Travis must pay to get back to Blake.
1: Yes, this seems to be another quite calculated attack, obviously, by sending Marriott off as the expendable. He's obviously quite senior. We learn later he has a security clearance for anywhere in Space Command. You know, he's a senior member of the service. With the idea that the service is a family, and that you would just callously throw one of them aside.
0: No, and given that it's later said in the episode, or in fact, I think it's the next episode, that this sort of surgery is relatively routine now. Mm. And it's only the fact that Ensor was on a distant planet, in yes. frontier world that he couldn't do it. That would imply that, you know, you could sort of send any junior doctor at Space Command along. So, yes, it has to be a deliberate choice to send Marriott. Again, I mean, as you say, this is the strongest scene in the episode. I totally agree. And that moment where Travis realises that it was Marriott and what's going to happen Mm. to him and his family.
1: Yes, more importantly. yes.
0: there's a real moment of humanity from Travis.
1: What's the matter? Marriott.
2: What about him? his disappearance. there may be questions. in 12 hours I shall have him posted as a deserter. and his family go into slavery on one of the frontier worlds. it is the normal procedure in a case of desertion. of course. do you remember the medic that saved my life? you're wasting time. it was Marriott. does it matter? no no Only Blake matters now.
0: And Orak. But then he says, well, no, if I need to get Blake, well, this is the sacrifice I make. And then there's that lovely conversation where he and Cerviland are comparing how ruthless they are. You're almost as
2: ruthless as I am. You underestimate me, Travis. It begins to look that way.
1: He is clearly bothered by what is going to happen to Marriott, and particularly Marriott's family. But this is the scene, really, where he makes the progression that ultimately, no, Blake is all that matters to him.
0: And on that, it's also a lovely moment as well of reinforcing why this federation that Blake is opposing is an evil force, in this idea that if you're a deserter, it's not just you who gets punished, mm. your family is punished, which is a very modern times, something you would think of you know, with the North Korean regime, for example.
1: That's right. This is also, as we said in that little clip, this is the moment where he realises that he has totally underestimated Servalane.
0: Yes. But what's important in this scene as well is that Servalane has very clearly, and outright states, ORAC is more important than Blake. Yes. To the point that if she was given, you know, door A and door B, and behind one was Blake and behind one was Orak, she would go for ORAC. Yes, that's right. Which, given that all we've seen Servalane do for the last season is hunt Blake, mm. just shows how important this Orak thing must be to her.
1: Indeed. Now, of course, speaking of Ensor, we mentioned earlier, obviously, after the ship crashes, he's rescued by the Liberator team. We have here that Avon is in charge of the surface mission. Yes. And he has a nice new shiny silver costume. (laughs) It's a point I noticed. We
0: really have started to move quite a way away from their having their Robin Hood surface gear costumes. But we are still at a point where they still do get dressed up to go down to the planet.
1: They do. Avon is in charge of the surface mission and really... Just takes the opportunity just to give that little needle to Blake that he might prove to be a better leader. Logic units
0: suggest that remaining life may have mutated through exposure to high
1: radiation. None of which sounds very promising. You sure you want to go down?
2: Are you afraid that I'll be able to cope with it better than you? (laughs) No.
1: Well, perhaps you ought to be. But Blake obviously doesn't rise to the bait. There is obviously, while they're running around on the surface of Cephalon, there is a bit of sort of dramatic setup for the rest of the episode. We see the scavenger trailing Jenna and Gan. Now, I have to say, that is not very well shot. They walk right past him, basically. <laughs> he just suddenly appears in view. That wasn't very well staged, that.
0: No, but we have almost got. The planet of the Terry Nation cliche here. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) We've got the devolved society, we've got lots of radiation, (laughs) (laughs) we've got primitives walking around in skins. All we need is a countdown clock and we'll probably have the...
1: We get one of those too when they're about to launch the rocket. That's true, we do, (laughs) we (laughs) do.
0: Yeah, this is Terry Nation really going back to the well on this one.
1: And of course, in another bit of setup, with another bit of what's going on here, Gan and Jenna walk past the door and suddenly the spy hole appears. Yep. (laughs) Somebody's watching them. Uh, Of course, they rescue Ensor, as we said. They teleport back up, but Jenna is missing. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: Kelly notices that Jenna's not there straight away. Which makes sense because she's the one teleporting them up. So she's she says, "Okay, I'll teleport up Avon and Villa. I'll yep. teleport up Jenner and Gan." Oh, hang on, Jenner isn't there. I'll keep trying. Yes, Blake doesn't notice.
1: No, it's not really the case they don't notice. I mean, look, obviously they're more concerned in carrying Insull down to the surgical unit.
0: And if you were being generous, maybe you'd say that Blake does notice, but can see Kelly still trying to get her yes. back up and sort of leaves it to
1: her. Yes, at the moment, but no, she doesn't teleport back up. And that's quite an interesting little effect too, where they have the teleport just sort of the flare, but nothing happens.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. That's a nice little bit of detail. But yes, the moment when they do discover that Jenna is not back and Avon sort of says, oh, well, I guess we better go back down for, and Blake has that, I think you would Better.
1: Yeah, that's a really nice implied threat, and it does sort of show that quite hard edge to Blake. Really, the the look Paul Darrow gives Avon sort of realizes he's blown his chance to show how good he is.
0: Yes, and Blake isn't willing to allow him to get away with being noble. It's all right; I'll go back down. It's like, no, no, you didn't have a choice. You're going back. Yeah, down.
1: that's right. Now we'll talk about the second segment on the Cephlon in our last segment, which we thoughtfully called Midget, <laughs> yep. but. They don't actually seem to really treat Ensor other than give him something for his pain. He obviously is desperate to get to his father with the power cells. We have the moment where he's in the surgical unit. He then overpowers Callie, and we have the whole stuff on the flight deck where he's got the gun to her head, and they have to leave for Aristo immediately.
0: I really do like the way that Ensor Jr. is portrayed in this, Mm. because he doesn't come across as a nasty guy he doesn't come across as a cipher this is a good man yeah. who's just utterly utterly desperate to say yeah his he hearts. does
1: i mean he doesn't want to hurt them no
0: so you get that combination of guilt and desperation in mm. effect.
1: actually i thought tony corner was really good yeah. in this yeah very good but you notice blake again sort of shows that harder more ruthless side it is a case you know you better be very careful because at one moment and we'll jump you
0: but again your sympathy has to be with blake Because it is possible to do both, given the speed of the Liberator.
1: Yes, but of course Ensor says he can't take that risk because he doesn't necessarily believe them. No. And I have to get back to my father. He's dying.
0: It's a scene that I remember being a kid as being really quite dull. Yeah. But but watching it now as an adult and seeing that depth of character in it, I actually appreciate it a whole lot more. Mm. We should note as well, Kelly does get to play medic. She's not very good yeah, at it. Yeah, so. as, as you say, all she does is give him a tranquilizer and some sedatives. But...
1: Yeah, they I, I don't actually seem to do anything else to even assess what his injuries well, are. Well,
0: I, I've always assumed his injuries must be sort of, you know, internal injuries, you mm. know, punctured lungs or ru- ruptured yeah. some things. And, and I don't imagine that anyone on the Liberator crew would really know how to do that.
1: Well, I don't know, considering they were willing to try brain surgery a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah, they, they quickly abandoned that idea, though. <laughs>
1: But Ensor obviously collapses and dies, and they're very much left this whole setup. is AURAC, and really what is something that the Federation is willing to pay 100 million credits for? Yes. Very much set up for next week.
0: And a final point I want to add on this sequence is that we do get some of the most wonderful shots of the Liberator in this part as well, that full-size Liberator model. Yes. Very slowly turning, changing course. You really get to appreciate just how good that model is in this episode. Mm,
1: Yes, indeed.
0: But... We're on to our Megat segment.
1: Yes. Now I had the note here. This is entertaining, but it is really sort of the B plot to give the other regular something to do.
0: Well, I made a couple of notes on the timing here. We don't meet Megat until thirty-one minutes in, and the power is turned on. And they start doing everything at the forty-minute mark. Right. So it's actually only nine minutes from meeting Megat to turning the power on, and then that very quick code when they launch the rocket. Yep. So she's only in it for about ten minutes.
1: Mm. That was probably long enough, I think. <laughs>
0: Look, I actually think it is something that doesn't overstay its welcome, but I agree if it was any longer, it would very quickly do so. Yes,
1: had this been half the episode, uh, yeah, I think this would have got tedious pretty quickly. We, we probably should talk about Cephalon, because it's set up in the opening scene with Ensor and Marriott that it was a major centre for that sector some time ago, but it, as again with the Terry Nation trope, yes, after a war, it's regressed to the primitive. Mm-hmm. I've got the impression it's obviously some way clearly outside regular space traffic or whatever.
0: Yeah, it's somewhere that Marriott, for example, has never heard of. Mm. The Liberator is sort of creeping around that area, and I, I would get the feeling the Liberator would stay quite away from the you know the Federation space lanes when it's not Until doing Until they're something. ready to come and hit something, yeah. yeah.
1: Perhaps more set up. It's flagged that, as we said in our Terry Nation trope, Cephalon has high background radiation. Yes. Although they stopped mentioning it about halfway through the episode. Avon has his line about when they realise they're trapped there. Well, given the radiation, you know, we're all in trouble. But... And this is something that I noted,
0: again, helps to separate and delineate Blake 7 from other sci-fi shows, particularly like Trek, hmm. where these are a bunch of amateurs. So if this was your Trek or Space 979 or, or Babylon 5 or one of those ones where you've got a professional crew, yep. so it'd be, okay, well, we have radiation, therefore we have these procedures, and we have this countdown, da 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 yep. da Whereas these are just people going, oh, there's radiation. I guess we don't stay down there too long or something. Yeah. And they, they don't actually manage that in a professional way.
1: No. We did mention about their trap down there. We have yet another example of the Liberator working out of communication range. Yes. Although, at least, look, there's not a last-minute rescue this time.
0: There's some good stuff. Look, I mean, the primitives at least get to do something.
1: Clearly, allowing at least one of them to speak would have meant paying more money. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) I
0: like the fact that Jenna is actually allowed to free herself and get away, at least briefly. Although it is, no doubt, just padding, at least it means that Jenna is yeah. not sitting there helplessly waiting for the guys to come and get her.
1: No, that is a note I had. She's shown here to be quite capable. She frees herself, knocks the guard out, and, you know, sort of headed out of the camp when the, suddenly the scavenger sort of looms over her.
0: Which does help you retain a little bit of credibility.
1: I did have the other further note here. She really doesn't have a lot to do this week and actually has less than half the lines that Gan gets. Wow.
0: Anyway, we're skirting around... Uh, megat Yes. Welcome, Lord. Welcome.
1: Megat is quite interesting because she's very obviously and now this is perhaps a budget thing but she's very obviously alone in that base
0: yeah this is something that i think is the weak point of the episode and as you said at the start it doesn't quite work with the two of us sitting down and pulling it apart 40 years later but i don't think it does quite work if you think about it Migat, as you say overtly states that she is alone so either she is the last one left of a group that stayed and If she died, then there was no chance. It would have made more sense if there was, you know, some sort of a a small colony or something, she was the next one, and then she had descendants or something. Well,
1: she says there's less than a hundred of her people left, and she seems to make the point that that's distinct from the scavengers.
0: So, unless there is a colony of her people... Further back
1: in the mountain or something. yeah, Yeah, which
0: is kind of what I had always assumed... But it is hard to rationalise with her idea that she is alone. So Mm. unless it's just, you know, part of the culture of this society is they pick a young maiden at the age of 18, she's banished to go and live in the control room and wait.
1: (laughs) She has to go and sit in the base for 40 years or whatever. Yeah, and then
0: when she dies, the next maiden is sent out or something. I don't know. And also, if she is alone, it kind of makes the Liberator crew leaving her there quite harsh.
1: Well, it does, rather, (laughs) because that is the note I had. Avon, clearly, there, there is sort of the inference that she once the rocket's been launched, perhaps sees through the myth, or at least loses interest in him, perhaps. Because he does make the point that she thought he was a god for a little while. Yes. But, yeah, he basically just, well, okay, that's fine, I've launched your rocket. See you later.
0: Yeah, so unless she's got a small colony to return to, does she just spend the next 40 or 50 years sitting there doing nothing? Yeah. But that all said, it is a lovely sci-fi idea what's going on here. Mm. And it does actually link thematically very nicely back to Time Squad, where you've got a different application of the same technology, the brew units, the German cells, and it's a really nice 70s sci-fi idea of we know our civilization is crumbling, so we're going to put together the race banks and start again afresh. Yep, on a Uh, new planet. It it has that cliché slash conceit of the only dude who knows how to activate the rocket gets killed before he can press the on (laughs) switch. But yeah, it's a nice idea. It doesn't stand up to detailed scrutiny but it is a nice idea, it's well executed, there's just enough of Migat doing her whole Lord Avon stuff to keep you amused
1: without getting tired. Yeah, you get the impression Avon, on one hand, is quite flattered by her attention, but on the other hand also somewhat embarrassed by it, I think particularly because Gan and Villa are there to see it as well.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing is that Avon values intelligence. Yes. And not, she is not an No, it's in an just blind way. devotion. Yeah, and that would not be something that would appeal to him.
1: No, indeed. I get the impression he does relish the chance to be a bit superior over the others. I mean, he has his thing about Villa that he clearly is the material that gods are made of. <laughs> and you're right. I think him taking advantage of her, you know, just prostrating herself in front of him, wouldn't really appeal to him, I don't think. No. It would be a very imbalanced relationship, and it would be too easy, I think. Susan Farmer, who plays Megat, was apparently a little unhappy, I think, that the role required her to do so much genuflectic, I think. <laughs> but yes, anyway.
0: Anyway, they do activate the rocket. They send mm-hmm. it off in a relatively easy manner.
1: Yes, well, once they've sort of discovered the fact that they can restore the power...
0: Yes, they're like, oh, we've turned the power on, oh, there's an on switch, let's go. Yes, well, look, the rocket's ready to launch. Mm -hmm. Look, I've said it before, it is a bit of a shallow idea, but it's one I really like. And because it's only introduced 20 minutes before the end, it's got exactly enough time to just do it without really getting too much No, that's
1: true. As we said, it doesn't outstay its welcome. No. Plus, then, we get the final scene with Blake. Now, how did you read that scene?
2: Did you really think you were a god?
1: for a while. How did it feel? And Avon makes a fairly obvious job. Don't you know? I made that as a bit of a calculated insult. Blake obviously doesn't rise to the bait.
0: Yeah, I actually thought that Blake outright missed the point. And Blake's sort of trying for the whole modest...
1: Yes. I don't like the responsibility either.
0: Mm. And I actually yeah, don't okay. think that that's what Avon was getting at at all, and Avon would probably sit there and go, don't give me that false modesty.
1: That's interesting, because I sort of had the thing about, is it more a case, perhaps, that... He understands the responsibility of people wanting to follow you, which Avon perhaps doesn't, or he's more aware perhaps of those responsibilities than Avon is, and indeed, maybe not embraces them, but we made the point that Avon obviously abandons Migat, even though he's given her deliverance. He takes no responsibility for what happens to her afterwards. He's just abandoned her effectively.
0: Yeah, I think the best thing we can say about that scene is that it is genuinely ambiguous, Mm. I think that a weaker story or even a weaker show would make it more overt and more explicit, and I think it's stronger for that Mm. dynamic, because you can imagine there would be many occasions when Blake and Avon wouldn't agree and perhaps would be talking past each other. That's sort of the episode, I guess. No, the episode stops fairly abruptly because it it really is part one of part two. and It is. It has everything apart from a slide that says, continued next week. Just
1: a couple of quick production notes before we go into our regular segments. We said at the top that the director on this episode was credited to Michael E. Bryant, but there was some uncredited work by David Maloney. Now, the breakdown is that Michael E. Bryant did the studio recordings and David Maloney directed the location work. Apparently there is a story that Douglas Canfield was originally down to direct this one. Okay. I have seen that printed in several places but our friend at the Making Blake 7 Twitter feed he says that that actually is a myth. He was only ever down to direct one episode which was Jill and he did that and moved on. There seems to be some slight difference in opinion as to why there was a split director. David Maloney's version is that Bryant wasn't available for the location shoot so he sort of had to step in. Michael E. Bryant's version is more that David Maloney wanted to flex his directorial muscle but either didn't have time to do the studio sessions or was told not to by the BBC who had very strict rules about producers directing their own series. Yeah,
0: very strict union guidelines as yes. well. Yes.
1: Anyway, but yes, there is a split in the workload here. One other note I had is the original script actually had Blake leading the away team down on Cephalon. Yes. And Avon staying in the Liberator. Now, that was retained for the novel, which I'm guessing perhaps was written from a draft script, Mm. although, look, the novel really doesn't have any of the running around on Cephalon stuff at all. No. One explanation for this is that it was done for story reasons, which we'll probably discuss next time. I did have a note here that it's also possibly for logistical reasons, because the location footage for this was shot during rehearsals for Bounty because they're under a lot of pressure, they're working on a couple of episodes at a time. And
0: it was pretty common with series back in the 70s that yes. the location would be done sometime before the studio.
1: Yes. So the idea is if they're doing rehearsals for Bounty, so Gareth Thomas and Jan Chappell can rehearse with T.P. McKenna while they take the other regulars out and do the location work in the quarry.
0: Yeah, it is very much that sort of split. And I think it's a very fortunate change because I just can't imagine the Megat and Blake stuff working nearly as well.
1: No, I don't think so. Two final notes. These are both prop. The Space Master ship that uh, Ensor and Marriott are flying is the same model and large prop as the little capsule they take in from Time Squad. Yes. It's had a bit of a repaint and a bit of a redress. Yes. And we will see it again later in the series. (laughs) Yes.
0: And I think it pops
1: up in the Hitchhikers a couple of years later as well. Yeah, I think so. And if you look at the teleport bay, they seem to be down about eight or nine (laughs) bracelets now. (laughs) Lucky the season's ending shortly. Yes, that's right. So there you go. On to our regular segments.
0: So, as always, our first regular segment is our look at the guest cast, mm. and we'll lead off with Tony Corter as Ensor Jr. Now, he has got a huge list of credits. He was a very in-demand yes, actor. He has. A lot of directors that were doing stuff at BBC were very big fans of his. He mm. regularly had work. For Doctor Who fans, he had three appearances. Probably his best of them is as Morgan in Colony in Space, where he's really cool. Yep. He's Jackson in Enlightenment, and he plays Thatcher in The Crusades. Okay. So he had three appearances there. One of his earliest works was in the big 1966 David Copperfield movie. Yep. Uh, He was in The Queen Street Gang as a regular. He did an episode of The Avengers, Ace of Wands, Cat Weasel. I know you're a fan of that. Yes, yes. He was Friar Tuck (laughs) in the series The Legend of Robin Hood. He was in Juliet Bravo, but his biggest credit has to be 565 episodes. As Roy in EastEnders.
1: Yes, and I think he actually was voted one of the most popular, when they did their most popular character yes. of, the, of the series run, I think he was voted certainly in the top 20, I think.
0: He was. So, yeah, a very big part in EastEnders there.
1: So our next one is Susan Farmer as Megat. Now, she had actually tested for the role of Callie. That's right. Mm. This actually is quite late In her career.
0: No, most of her work's actually in the 1960s. She's got a huge number of credits there.
1: Yeah, she did a lot of work for Hammer.
0: She did. She was also in 633 Squadron, which is a fairly famous World War II movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, The 1965 Sherlock Holmes, Rasputin the Mad Monk, (laughs) and an episode of UFO. But she was doing lots of those play-for-today type stuff. Yeah. Quite prestige, high drama stuff for television. Mm.
1: Her brother, Michael Farmer, is actually Life Peer the Lord Farmer.
0: (laughs) Sorry, I have to ask... Does he come over for Sunday Roach? And she says, welcome, Lord, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, had to go there. Yeah,
1: Yeah, he was a businessman, a one-time treasurer of the Conservative Party, but he was made a life peer a few years ago.
0: Now, look, we're not going to go into too much stuff on James Lister, who plays Marriott for literally one scene, Mm. but he doesn't have a huge, long career, but he had a lot of work around the time he was doing this. Probably the most famous thing he did around this time was All Creatures Great and Small. Right, was in some of that, but he has sort of very scattered credits until 1990 when he doesn't have anything else.
1: Right, okay. And the last one I'm going to pull out is, and he plays one of the scavengers, which is Pat Gorman. Yes. Who was really a professional extra and sort of bit part player or, or background actor. A bit like H. Fielder, who we mentioned in Spacefall, who, who's actually also in this. <laughs> Pat Gorman's in heaps of stuff, really, from the 60s through to mm. the, sort of the early 90s. He's probably best known. He did a lot of work in Doctor Who, particularly in the Pertwee era.
0: Yeah, in the early times as well. Yeah.
1: yeah. He's actually in more episodes of Doctor Who, I think, than quite a few of the
0: Doctors. Of non-regular characters, he's unquestionably the person who's appeared in the most episodes. Yeah. Unquestionably. Um,
1: yeah, it's something like 95 episodes. Yeah. It's all over the classic series. But he's in a lot of other really well-known series. I mean, he's often... Look, he's one of those actors they would engage him in multiple roles. He'd come back three or four times, you know, a series like The Professionals or whatever. Because he's a background player, he does a lot of stuff. Like, he's a lot of policemen, a lot of soldiers, a lot of gang members. A security guard receptionist. Yeah. But he's very recognisable. You watch a lot of British TV sort of around the 60s, 70s, 80s. He's in a lot of stuff. He is. Mm. There you go. There you go. Now, our next segment is the Liberator Database.
0: Uh, so I had a couple of points here that we needed to uh, just add to our collection of Blake 7 Universe, we have the introduction of the concept of high-impact unpowered survival modules, or life capsules. Yes, that's right. Now, we have had life capsules mentioned before in Mission to Destiny, Yep, but they are something that is recurring. This is the first time we see one.
1: Mm. We mentioned that Gene Banks Gann specifically mentions the projectile that they took on board. Nice shout back to an earlier episode, and actually quite unusual, I think, for a series at this time. Really, they refer to something that happened nearly two months ago.
0: Yes, and it is reflective of the fact that the Blake 7 production team were actively putting together mm. a Bible of all this collective sort of stuff. And you see that, again, I wanted to give a shout-out to some of the teleport stuff. We again see Kelly this time using the correct teleport sequence. The Paul Darrow-approved sequence. The darrow sequence, yes. <laughs> You mentioned before the effect of the teleport being unable to bring somebody up. Yep. And just the little line there where they're about to bring Ensor up to the Liberator, and they ask, well, will he live through the teleport stress? Mm. And that's the first time we've actually mentioned that teleporting is perhaps slightly stressful on the body. Yeah,
1: and a bit dangerous. yeah. Yeah. A couple other nights We're sort of on prop watch again. Kelly has a little entertainment unit this week. Yes. And we actually hear it playing music this time. Yes. Yeah. Not,
0: not sure that that's a good idea because <laughs> the music is a little bit dated, but that's yeah. okay. We're going to mention that the Liberator can receive subbeam. Yes. Which is a type of beam that is useful when the plot requires you to talk over long distances.
1: Yes, that's right. One note I did have. This is the first time we see Avon kill someone. Oh, cool. When he shoots one of the scavengers. Yep. Okay. There you go. Noted. Hmm. Our next segment is It Was the 1970s.
0: So, a couple of points I had to make here, and they're very much just about the technology that we see. The rocket technology is very 1970s. Yeah,
1: a chemical rocket.
0: Yep. yep. And something that's really odd is that when they activate the power and do the takeoff, suddenly there's like people talking.
1: Yes, like mission control Like voices. mission
0: control. So I don't know whether somebody in the special effects department or the audio effects department just said, oh, it's a mission control, we need to have, you know, people doing the whole, you know, ready to go, activating, dun, 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 dun. Mm,
1: and watching the scanners and whatever. Yeah, or yeah. whether or
0: whether the computers are talking, but it just is really Oh, I, I assumed
1: it was meant to be the automated systems, but it is, it's very strange. Yeah, yeah. You notice that they have a fairly laborious sequence where they're talking about they're still powering the consoles and maybe they can power them up and they're going to do that, whereas I think a modern sci-fi now would just show the flashing light, oh, look, there's still power, rather than explain what it is, but that's really a bit of a nitpick.
0: Yeah, no, fair enough.
1: Yeah. So now perhaps on our slightly lighter segments, the first of which is Gan Watch.
0: There's a note that I had here that I wanted to call out, because Gan actually is quite involved in the plot in this he one. He does I have a to bit say. to
1: do this week. We actually mentioned he has more lines than Jenna, and indeed more than Callie.
0: Yeah, that's right. But it's very interesting, when Jenna is not brought up to the Liberator, Gan says... Well, she was right behind me when we teleported, which is demonstrably not true. Mm-hmm. He actually wanders off on her. So either Gan is being deliberately neglectful of Jenna or he's just trying to cover his ass because he actually wasn't looking out for Jenna no. and now she hasn't turned up. But, oh, no, she was right behind me. Given the conversation we had him break down, you can take it either way. And I think it's yep. interesting that it's left that way. But yes, I did want to call out that moment of Gan.
1: Mm. He mentions his limiter. This week. Now, this actually, and this is a bit of an advanced spoiler, this is the last time that's mentioned in the series. We don't encounter that again. As we said, he actually has a bit to do this week. I think this one is probably reasonably well split, perhaps in terms of screen time. With the exception of Jenna. Yes. And even
0: she's given her a little escape moment. Mm. But yes, they all get a sort of an even amount of the script. A little bit more for Paul Darrow. Mm. But otherwise, yeah, they all get to play a
1: role. Yeah, so this actually probably, for Gan, is not a bad episode.
0: No, not at all. But that takes us on to... What cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week?
1: Interestingly, I actually had the note here, it's probably more Villa with the witty comebacks this week.
0: I spotted that too. This is actually where we start to see a lot more work given to Villa in terms of his lines. And the double act between Avon and Villa is really evident here.
1: This is the thing. and We're now obviously in the part of the series where Chris Boucher is having to do more and more work on the script. I, I suspect that's maybe his influence starting to come through.
0: Yeah, I think so as well. Particularly remember Chris Boucher and we'll talk a little about him in one of our series specials later on in the run of this podcast, but he got a lot of mentoring work from Robert Holmes. Mm. And Robert Holmes, is famous amongst Doctor Who fans for his, quote, Holmesian double acts. Yes. (laughs) And you can see that influence coming through in Chris Boucher's writing, and and that is the case with the Villa-Avon dynamic here.
1: Yeah, and and interestingly, and again, we're, we're probably leaping forward a bit, you notice when Robert Holmes actually starts writing for the series, it is Avon and Villa most of the time that he picks up on. It is. Yeah. We are really now starting to see that sort of antagonistic thing with a bit of mutual respect, though, built in as well.
0: Yes. But that said, look, Avon does get some very cool lines here. There's all lot that turns out to be overly confident line at the start where he says to Blake, are you worried that I'll be able to cope with it better than you? <laughs> no. Well, perhaps you ought to be.
1: Yeah. <laughs> as we said, that doesn't really work out. No, that, that well does come back him. to
0: bite him. There is the bit where I think it's Gann who says to Avon about Jenna, just don't give up on her. And he says, no, we won't do that. Not yet. <laughs> a couple of others that sort I of had to revolve around him and megat Gat. Uh, Villa saying to him, you're enjoying this, aren't you? Probably.
1: And again, you notice it the response to a Villa yes. feed line.
0: And another interaction with Villa, as well as you highlighted, is where everyone says to Villa, well now, you are hardly the stuff that gods are made of, and you are, apparently. <laughs> yeah, the deadpan way that Paul Darrow plays that all is really, really good. But yeah, there's some really nice dialogue in this. I quite enjoyed yeah.
1: it. Or indeed, one I had for Villa, one of my favourites actually was a bit where he says, Counting yourself, that's two people who think you're wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's really quite engaging. Yeah. Well, we're now at the end of the episode. All that's left is our Player, player of, of the, the week. week. And since this is my episode, you can go first.
0: I have a new nomination this time.
1: Wow, okay. I'm
0: giving my Player of the Week to Chris Boucher. Ah. And I say that because... Look, famously, this is one of the scripts where Nation did a very quick, very Mm. short rough draft. Chris Boucher has clearly taken a bit of time with this one and has turned it into a very watchable story Mm. with some really engaging dialogue. As I said, the characters, even the characters that only get one or two scenes, feel like real people, there's good background. I actually think Chris Boucher deserves a lot of credit for this. You can feel in this one him moving from just being the script editor to really taking that almost showrunner yeah. type role. yep And so, yeah, I think it's really important. And, yeah, I'm very happy to give Chris Boucher my Play of the Week this week. Right. Who have you got, Richard?
1: I actually gave it to Servalane. Oh, OK, yes. Because, as we said, that scene with Travis, I think, is the best scene in the episode. The reason I picked serverland is this really is where we first see the Servalane that we know from the rest of the series. The first couple of episodes where she's been... Not, she's not a background character, because she's far too good for that. But she's really just been sort of Travis's boss. Here, she starts to take centre stage. And this, as I said, this is the serverland we will see from here on.
0: Yeah, as I highlighted earlier, her interaction with Travis is fantastic. Mm. She's ruthless, she's in control. But Jacqueline Pierce is acting in that very first scene, mm. where she's able to be in control, but nervous, and convey it all without any dialogue, mm. or very little dialogue. Yeah, really, really good performance. So, no, yep. yeah, I totally get why you've done that.
1: Yeah, um, that was probably also because none of the regulars really stood out for me. But <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, well, that's the problem I had as well. I think that Gareth Thomas and Paul Darrow and Michael Keating all give really good performances, mm. but they are all equally good, and you couldn't really say one stood the... out.
1: No, not really. No,
0: and you know Chris Boucher isn't just a cop out. No, for he, sure, he really does. No, deserve for sure, story. and yeah. we did
1: make the point this is where we really now start to see his influences coming through on the script. So.
0: To sort of sum up my feelings, I will say that of all the episodes we've watched so far, this is probably the one that has gone up the furthest in my estimation okay. because I really did have memories of it being quite dull. Mm. And watching it back and giving it proper attention, I've really been impressed by how well written it was, how much is really going on. There actually are three good plots in this mm. cool sci fi ideas. Look, it's not the best episode of the season, there's a lot of better stuff in the season. I don't want to go too far. <laughs> But of the back end, you know, those four after Project Avalon, I think this is a real standout, and I was really pleased to watch it.
1: Okay. Very good. As I said, I probably didn't get quite as much out of it as you did, but this was certainly entertaining enough to watch. I certainly wasn't bored.
0: No. Well, we'll continue this conversation with part two of this story with Aurak in a fortnight's time. Yes. So, in the meantime, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Aristo. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake Simmons.
2: Technology like this and still get your light from those. Technology? All this. But it does not provide light. Well, it could me get if it was working. Of course. That's why they were waiting for us. All things are known to you. You are truly Lord. Counting yourself, that makes two people who think you're wonderful.